on FM, on DAB, and up to date on social media. We are Radio Newark. Radio Newark. Well, hello, good morning. It's Sunday morning, so that means it's girls around town here on Radio Newark. Me, June Rollins, in the chair for the first hour, um, but I will be handing over to uh, my good friend Rosalind Palmer because she will be talking uh, throughout the first hour to a very special guest, a national treasure. We're talking to a national treasure here on Girls Around Town this morning. Anne Whittacombe is um, going to be explaining all, all sorts of things, including, of course, why she is um, on tour. Uh, her tour which started on friday night here in newark in fact at the palace theater so you'll be hearing from um Anne and Rosalind in just a few moments throughout the first hour in the second hour we have a guest coming in andy tudbury who is going to be coming to talk to us about last year um last year's garden and flower festival of uh, flower and garden festival actually i think at beaver castle and why and how he's planning to have a second one later on in the year i think it's sometime in july but we'll get that from andy later on so without further ado handing over to Rosalind right now today uh in the studio at radio newark on girls around town um i'm delighted to welcome uh, a guest Anne widdicombe good morning Anne. good morning Rosalind. thank you very much for coming in and um i can safely say i know Anne because we've had two very memorable overseas trips together and for those who clearly can't see is laughing now um to ethiopia and to mozambique um in Anne's role as vice president of the christian charity the leprosy mission uh, where i used to work and uh interestingly last night because it was the opening night of Anne's tour um is it called strictly Anne or what strictly is it? Anne. yes yeah. strictly Anne. um an evening um with Anne, and she was at the newark palace theater and it was the first night of a 30 date tour so we're very very happy that she chose newark as her first date it was a brilliant turnout and funnily enough one of the questions was about um leprosy but let's double back to where you started the evening and because you said people always want to know how you segued from that amazing career in politics to a life um in a lot of reality tv and there was a beautiful question i made a note of it which was has the enduring legacy of strictly been that it allowed you to express your inner sequin <laughs> <laughs> so that's the question to you Anne, to that start question, today yeah, I only, as i said last night um the reason that i made that rather dramatic transition was because i recognized seemingly before anybody else did that the day and the hour that parliament was dissolved in the year that i retired was the same day and hour in which i ceased to be an mp and that from that moment onwards i hadn't the slightest obligation to to think to act to take decisions as if i were an mp because i wasn't going to be one and i got that and so i could make a complete break do something completely different try things i would never have dreamt of trying while i was still a member of parliament that it would be inappropriate to have tried uh, and uh, Strictly Come Dancing obviously was the first of those uh, and uh, I didn't look back and when I was asked to do Strictly Come Dancing I, I turned it down year after year because I was still an MP when I finally said I would do it I thought well I'll be there about three weeks <laughs> uh, and then I'll be gone because I can't dance can't hear music no rhythm and, uh, um, oh an ideal candidate then uh, well <laughs> So that's what I that's what I really thought was going to happen, and of course it went in a completely different direction. 
Yeah, and it was interesting that you said that everybody in Parliament said don't do it to you. Everybody did, friend and foe alike. Everybody said don't do it, you'll lose your gravitas, you'll make a fool of yourself. And I said both those things are true. Um, I will lose my gravitas. Actually, it was gravity I had most of the problems with. <laughs> but uh, I said, yes, I will lose my gravitas um, and I will undeniably look a fool. But um, what does it matter? What do I want my gravitas for? I'm not an MP anymore. And I got that. I got that in the first hour that I ceased to be an MP. Um, but others somehow thought that I was going to go on in the same vein as if I hadn't retired. And would you put that down, that ability to know when the end is the end and it's time to move on and your ability to do that, down to maybe your childhood growing up in an admiralty family? Well, absolutely, because we moved around every two to three years. So one day I'd be living in a house that I'd been in for that long with friends I'd known for that long, going to a particular school, belonging to the local brownie pack, uh, and then the very next day, no transition, no cosy preparatory visits, nothing like that, the very next day. I'd be in a different part of the country or on my way to a completely different part of the globe, uh, preparing to get used to a new house, new school, new brandy pack, and crucially to make friends again from scratch. And I think the subconscious lesson of that childhood, I didn't realise at the time, but the subconscious lesson was when something's gone, it's gone. Yeah. There's no good looking for yesterday's house and school and friends because they're actually they're not here. And therefore, when I left Parliament, I automatically, I just automatically knew that bit of my life was gone yes and i think i think that's a really great gift isn't it because there's it's sort of a sort of sadness really about people who i used to be this um mm. interestingly i was um i was in dubai and i heard a, a preacher talk about that people who'd lived in what was rhodesia that became zimbabwe yes. and a lot of them were called the Wenwees. <laughs> Because they'd start every sentence with when we lived, you know, and they call them the when we's because they couldn't sort of let go of that past that they well, had. Well, actually, I mean, I think that's an affliction of, of old age in general. Right. I mean, when you've been around a long time, uh, you do make comparisons and, and you do tend to say when I or in my day mm. or in those days, whatever it might be. Uh, and there's no harm in that. That's how knowledge and wisdom and experience is passed on from generation to generation you i mean it's like the big arguments at the moment over brexit i'm old enough to remember life before the eu uh which uh, uh millions of those who voted didn't remember mm. uh because they never experienced it that's why they didn't remember it it wasn't part uh, of the of the accumulated knowledge uh, and therefore, I think it's very important, actually, that people do talk about life before the EU, um, not because you necessarily hanker to go back to exactly uh, that way of doing things, but because what you're saying is, look, you know, today isn't necessarily tomorrow, mm. you know, any more than yesterday was today. Uh, and things do change and things do move on. And yes, we can make changes. And it's it's no big deal. And interestingly, last night, I mean, I, I thought you steered it brilliantly particularly when it went to the second half when people are asking questions and um there was the the light and the dark so there was a yeah. lot about politics and we will talk yeah. about that in a moment but um you actually then said to the audience can i have some frivolous questions yeah. please which i think is where the sequin question came from so back to the frivolity of strictly yeah. um what did you love about the show and then the tour what were the highlights for you well, I think what I loved about the show was just the fun of it. But for me, particularly, it was the release from responsibility. Yeah. Because for 23 years, everything I did, everything, 
from the way I handled a piece of casework to the way I voted in Parliament, to the policies I espoused as a minister, to those I proposed in opposition. Every single thing I did had the ability to affect other people for good or for ill. On Strictly Come Dancing, <laughs> there was nothing I could affect for ill other than Anton Shins, and I did that okay. Uh, but so forgiven you. It was just a release from responsibility. It didn't matter. I mean, every day of my life, what I did mattered. And then suddenly, it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter if I made a mess of the Paso Doble. It's a dance competition, not a world war. <laughs> now, I used to say that to the people who were getting so, so het up about it and so worried about how they were going to... This is a dance competition. It's a dance competition. It is not a world war. Nobody is going to die if you make a mess of it. I liked your comment that however rude the judges were to you, <laughs> they never that. they never ever got a response <laughs> from you. You know, they didn't get the quavering bottom lip or anything. You gave as good as you got, didn't you? And, and I think that was all part of the fun of it. I mean, people wanted to know, you know, what the next lot of repartee between myself and the judges uh, was going to be. And it was an occasion when they called me the Ark Royal. And this so upset the Navy that they decommissioned the ship two weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that'll go down in history then. <laughs> <laughs> I also liked the fact that you said that the whole, um, all the choreography was really uh, based around you being either up in the air or thrown across the floor for most of the time, so you actually didn't have to dance. Well, that's absolutely <laughs> true. I mean, people say to me even now, they say, are you still dancing? And I say, well, I never was dancing. <laughs> Anton called it many things, but he never called it dancing. And uh, I think my favourite moment as well was when you were in pantomime, and was that with Craig Revelhorwood? Oh, with Craig Revelhorwood, I did and my first that panto, story yeah. about that he said, oh, it was going to be fine, and then you came out and he was dressed as a dame or something? No, 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 Craig, Craig was playing Wicked Queen Lucretia. That was that, it. That, that was his role. He was playing the Wicked Queen in Snow White, and he proposed a particular dance move, which we had done on, on the, the Strictly tour when I was dancing with Craig, because Anton doesn't do the tour. So we had done it, and, and we knew we could do it, but we hadn't done it for about 10 months. <coughs> and uh, I was uh, very, very dubious about doing this move without rehearsal. He said, no, no, trust me, darling, I'm a professional, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> what he'd clean forgotten was that because he was dressed as a woman, he'd been equipped with a false bust. <laughs> and so when he came to pick me up, he suddenly realised he couldn't hold me against his chest in the normal position. <laughs> Uh, so, as I've said, he was calling out most urgently to somebody in the audience, and that person's name was Gordon Bennett. <laughs> Radio Welcome back to Girls Around Town on Radio Newark, and I'm Rosalind Palmer, and I'm in conversation with Anne Whittacombe, who this weekend um, held an evening with Anne, or strictly Anne, at the Palace Theatre Newark. You've been in um, many other reality TV programmes, and the one that you spoke about um, last night was the Victorian oh, House. Yes. And interestingly, in the car coming, I, I mentioned to you that part of that was filmed at the Southwell Workhouse, which is very near yep. here, and that actually my, um, my grandma... Um, and my grandfather, they were greengrocers and they actually delivered to the workhouse and my grandma at some point in the 1920s made a delivery to the workhouse and came home with a child <laughs> Good for um, her. because yep. she felt so sorry yep. for this young boy and he was, well, my uncle um, I never met him because very sadly, as I said, he actually died at um, Dunkirk and then my father was born a few years later, so um, yeah, nice connection but it made me laugh that you 
you said that you had to stop at a motorway service station when you were um, during the filming, yeah. and they were so worried that you'd run off and get a latte or something. Oh, yes, they, 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 they had to let us stop because they were transporting us on a two-hour journey or something. Uh, so they had no choice but to let us stop, and because we were not supposed to be having any luxury at all, they'd got us in a very, very basic mini-coach, so there was no sanitation on the coach, so there was no choice. We really had to stop at a service station. Well, what the regular clientele thought when this six filthy working-class Victorians came in, I don't know. But the production team was terrified that we were going to evade their vigilance and get a latte. What they'd overlooked was that all we had in our pockets were sixpences and half crowns. That wasn't going to buy a latte. <laughs> but you were very excited with the running water in the toilet. But we toilets, were very excited I understand. with the hot water on tap. Yeah. yeah and, and ordinary flush loose because we'd been managing on Victorian privies for days. And your great comment to, was it Colin Jackson, when you bumped into him uh, sometime yes, later? yes, Colin Jackson and I met several months later at a completely unrelated programme. Uh, and as we gave each other a hug of greeting, we spoke simultaneously and we said, oh, you do smell better. <laughs> was that one of the worst things about it? Um, <coughs> the absence of cleanliness was gust. Yeah. Like, really gust. Yeah, so they really made you do it, you know, oh, properly, we were didn't you? Yeah. Uh, we wore Victorian clothes all the way through to the underwear. We ate Victorian food. We lived in Victorian houses. We slept on Victorian mattresses on the floor. Um, everything was, was a complete, faithful recreation of the Victorian era. And you've made um, many documentaries as well, and you um, spoke about one last night, which also had a great anecdote, which was um, Moses and the Ten Commandments. Yes, we had. Um, the programme was actually called Moses and the Law, but it was about right. the Ten Commandments. And the producers thought up a jolly wheeze whereby we'd go up to London and um, to, along to the inns of court. And we would challenge passing barristers as to how many of the Ten Commandments they could remember. And the reason for doing this was that our law was based on the Ten Commandments. So we would go along, we would see these practitioners of law, how many of the Ten Commandments they knew. Well, the first person I challenged was an older barrister, and I was just halfway through saying who I was and what I was doing. Uh, when I saw him laughing and suddenly realised that the man I was about to challenge was the then Lord Chancellor, Charlie Falconer. <laughs> he got Start five. at the top. He got five. He got five. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and your other, um, well, passion, I presume, is writing. Uh, you have many books. You have an autobiography. Do you love writing? Uh, yes, I do. I've, I've written from childhood. I mean, I always said one day you know I, I i would be an author and indeed when i was much younger i dreamed of uh, one day being a full-time author you know so yes i've always wanted to write but my life was such that i didn't really have time uh, until i left office not parliament but office and i produced my first book in t 2000 um and i was still at the time uh, in the shadow cabinet but I'd had a year off between leaving office and going into the shadow cabinet, and, and that was when I did most of it. And you spoke about your detective novels. Um, One novel. Not novel, novels. sorry, yeah. that um, you have a more unusual approach to it, which might not always um, be... Well, I said I was never certain I was going to be able to write a detective novel for the simple reason that the way I write is I have a situation, I introduce some characters to it, and then I stand back and I watch what happens, and I never know. I mean, I never know when I open a book how it's going to end. I may have some vague notion, but I, I never really know precisely. Well, if you want to write a classic sort of detective novel whereby you have the murder fairly early on and then you lay the clues and you try and confuse the clues so that people come to the wrong conclusion, but if you've been fair, they can come to the right conclusion. Well, if you're going to do one of those, then in order to lay those clues, you've got to know where they're taking you. So you've got to know who did it and how and why. 
and I thought, can I really write a book towards a strictly prescribed end from the moment I write the opening lines? And I was never certain I could do it. <laughs> so you go along with the journey as well? Well, I wouldn't call it a journey. I think that's a, a, a much hacked phrase, quite honestly. I mean, everybody on Strictly says, oh, my Strictly journey. Oh, is that right? And I remember uh, Anton remarking to me on one occasion, he said, we've enough journeys here for an entire odyssey, you know, we, we just don't need to hear about it. So I don't use that expression, journey. Um, but yes, uh, I, it's part of the exploration. When I'm writing a book, I do not know what's going to happen when I next sit down. Uh, and I always like to be surprised when I stand up and think, oh, well, that's what's happened. Otherwise, it's it's no fun. I mean, you might as well be writing, uh, you know, to order, or you you might be writing to a, a, a very set pattern, bit like you do when you start writing compositions as a child. And you, you do need to be uh, to be free to explore and have your characters do things that you never thought they would do in a million years. Hmm. Occasionally, to rebel hmm. against something that you thought they were going to do, and then they just say no. There was a question last night that was, what did you do in your life before politics? And yes. your answer was, I had a proper job. Yes. Does that mean you don't think politics is a proper job? I do think politics is a proper job, but I think an awful lot of people go into politics not having had a proper job or not having had one for very long, haven't developed in a job. Um, we call them, of course, the career politicians. You know, these are people who, like me, always wanted to go into politics, but who, unlike me, managed it at a very early stage mm. uh, and haven't had a career before. So, no, politics is, is, is well and truly a proper job, and it's a very important job, and it's a much underestimated job. Uh, but um, what I meant was I'd had a job before I went into politics. And that had given you that life experience well, and that understanding, yeah. 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 Well, some understanding, some life experience, and what's your view of the current crop of politicians, Anne? Well, it's not particularly favourable. Now, there are some very serious people there. And as I was saying last night, you know, somebody like Philip Hammond is a very serious politician. He's quite quiet. He hasn't got a huge bucket of charisma. But look at the way he's managed to run the economy and look at the way he handled the, the, the post-referendum vote and when everybody said it was going to be a disaster. And he kept totally calm and the country's done very, very well out of it. Uh, and uh, I admire people like that who just do a steady job, a good job, who aren't necessarily... Um, I mean, he does come in front of the cameras, obviously, because of the job he's doing, but they're not self-promoting hmm. all the time. Uh, and I think that's very important. And then there are some quiet backbenchers who do exactly the same people like Frank Field on the Labour side, for example, who've got a particular expertise in health and social services, uh, uh, and they, they, they just battle on doing a very, very good job. Uh, so, uh, there are lots of exceptions to what I'm about to say, but I think that in general, the quality of Member of Parliament has declined, and it's declined really quite sharply. Um, and one of the reasons is that both parties have tried to manipulate the composition of Parliament. They've said, oh, we need more women, for example, or we need more ethnics, or we need more gays. And then instead of just actively trying to find people who are able who fall into those categories what they do is they manipulate the selection processes so they say this is an all women shortlist now that is another way of saying able men can't apply mm -hmm. so in the end you're not being selected on ability now in the days when for example we women had to meet the men on equal terms in the selection process you've got people like thatcher Barbara Castle, Shirley Williams to take a cross-party sample, you know you had all those people. You had people who had serious quality. They were serious. 
Um, but now, uh, when they get their own specially favoured terms, of course, they're not always up to it. And would you say a lot of it is now then kind of style over substance? I think there's a lot of style over substance. I think the, um, a lot of damage has been done by the media who regularly portray MPs as a collective body in the worst possible light. I mean, allegedly, you know, MPs are going off on a three-month holiday. I don't know any MP who takes the whole of Recessor's holiday, and if he did, God help him in his constituency. I mean, what MPs do generally in that long summer recess is July is desk clearance, August is holiday, uh, and finding the family again, uh, and September is a constituency because at that stage, uh, all the businesses and all the schools are back in the constituency and working again after the August breaks. But Parliament isn't, Hmm. so the MP's got time to, uh, to visit all those. Um, uh, but no, the press will tell you, you know, MPs have gone on a three-month holiday. Uh, MPs are claiming, you know, for pencils. I mean, all that's happened is the MPs gone to Ryman's because unlike most normal offices, you have to go and get your own stationery and then charge for it. You know, you don't just get it supplied. Um, so they go to Ryman's and they get a whole lot of things and on the list of three pencils or something. And then, of course, the headline the next day is MP claims for three pencils. If you are a serious person with a big record of success in the outside world, and you're looking to give something back, and you'll say 50-55, why the heck would you want to join a profession in which every bus ticket is held up to ridicule? You don't. So Mm. we're not attracting the quality. And the medium has taken an awful lot, not the whole lot, but an awful lot of the responsibility for that. For that loss of attracting that calibre of person. Yeah. Radio Newark. Welcome back. We're in conversation here at Girls Around Town on Radio Newark with Anne Widdicombe, uh, learning all about every aspect of her life. And this weekend, she was at the Palace Theatre in Strictly Anne. Obviously, a lot of the questions last night were um, about Brexit. Um, there's been a perception, in a way, that nobody's running the country while everybody's, you know, spending all oh, their time just, doing that. Yeah. Um, what's your view on that? That it's been extremely badly handled. The nation made a decision, uh, of, of, and I agree. I agree with leaving. I voted to leave. You I remember. Leave. I remember sitting next to you in the House of Lords the day of the vote. You had a badge that was so big that you know. Uh, leave. Uh, yes. Uh, leave. <laughs> and we yeah. had a. Shall we say we had a robust conversation, Anne? About. By the way, I think we should tell your <laughs> listeners we're not both in the House of Lords. We were at a function. No, in the that House is of very Lords. true. Yeah. We were at actually a charity function, um, saying thank you to people who'd made wonderful yeah. donations to the charity. But to answer your question, I mean, I think Brexit has been mammothly badly handled um we should have said right from the start uh, unless there's a deal we're just going without one prepared for that and in fact there have been an awful lot of preparations going on behind the scenes but instead of reassuring the nation and saying you know this is it and we're we're we're, uh, we're not going to crash out you know we, we just leave uh, instead of doing that um all the emphasis has been on we must get a deal and then she come the prime minister comes up with a deal uh, it's not going to get through parliament so she pulls it few weeks later, still not going to get through Parliament, so she lets Parliament vote and defeat it, and then she does all the things that she should, that have, she done. should have done in the first place. Mm. Mamma mia. So how would you handle it if you were doing it now? Well, I wouldn't be where we are now, because I would have handled it differently uh, from the start, but certainly now, my attitude would be to say to the EU, right, you know, we've told you what we want, we've told you what will make us sign this deal, which is the solution to the Irish backstop. 
if you do that in whatever way you do it, whether it's agreeing that we can come out of the backstop without your permission or whether we put a firm time limit on it or whether we don't go into it or whatever it may be, um, that's what's got to be solved. So we've told you. Now you tell us what you propose. I'm sick of the way that we always go over there as if we're supplicants. Mm. We should be saying to them, we've told you our position. Now you think about it. When you've got your answer, you come and tell us. Mm. Strength. Strength. And the other um, conversation, I, I don't think the question was asked and you asked it of yourself, was about the NHS Well, I as asked well, it because nobody else Because you it. talked about oh. Bevan and really his vision rather than the vehicle. Yeah, um, I... The NHS cannot survive in its present form. Uh, Bevan set it up, or the founding fathers of the NHS set it up, on completely false premises, which did not, which were not stupid in the context of the times. They, they look stupid now, but they weren't then. Uh, for example, Bevan thought because we had a health service, we'd all get healthier, which we have, and that therefore, he concluded, demand would decline. Mm. Now, he could not foresee, nobody could foresee in the 1940s, the vast surge in medical and surgical science which took place in the 60s and kept going and has driven demand towards infinity. You know, we're able to do things now that would have been science fiction yeah. for the founding fathers of the NHS. Absolutely. First thing that was wrong. Second thing that was wrong, he didn't predict and who would have predicted the huge rise in longevity, which has put a tremendous pressure uh, on the NHS. Uh, and finally, he thought that national insurance would always be able to make a seriously significant contribution, the stamp, as it used to be called then. Uh, and, of course, it doesn't. Uh, over 80% comes from taxation. Some of the rest comes from private health insurance and all the rest of it. Uh, the contribution offered by national insurance has you know, really shrunk to not much. I mean, there is some there, but not much. So uh, he got those things wrong. But his vision was, and I think we all share the vision, nobody should ever be denied health services because they can't afford them. That was the vision. Amen. The vehicle he chose was everything free at the point of reception, quite regardless of your means. Mm. So J. Paul Getty can get it just the same, you know, as the chap who's just come up from a shift in the mind. So you, you, you get everything free, regardless of means. That was his vehicle to deliver the vision. We've now made a shibboleth of the vehicle. Uh, and we're saying the crucial thing is to preserve free for all, regardless of means at the point of reception. No, the crucial thing is to do what we are not doing at the moment, which is to make sure that nobody loses out on health because they can't afford it. Mm. Because when health services fail to deliver, as they quite regularly do these days, and they do a huge amount of very good work. But when they do fail to deliver, if you can't afford to go private and get out of the trap, you've had your chips. Mm. Now, you know, that wasn't the original so vision. So it's actually contrary to the yes. original vision. Yeah. That's because we've preferred the vehicle to the vision. And some politician has to have, well, I did in 1998. I actually, when I was Shadow Health Secretary, I based my entire party conference speech on the premise that the health service can't survive in its present form. And that was 20 years ago. Hmm. And if we'd started the debate then as to what we could do, we'd be a lot further forward But now. do you think any politician's going to have the guts to do that now? Well, they haven't, and they yeah. don't, um, because they think it would be electoral suicide. In fact, the public are quite grown up about this. The public would be very frightened if we said something like, well, we're going to privatise the NHS. The public would be very frightened by that. But if you say right from the outset, what we're going to do is ensure that nobody is denied health because they can't afford it, um, 
and that already that isn't happening and we want to make sure that it does happen i think if you start from that basis and then you introduce the fact that people who can afford it should probably make some contribution then you have to ask well, how do they make that contribution uh do you encourage insurance schemes uh do you charge directly for some services which is what a lot of countries do i'm against charging for all sorts of reasons but you know it's a possibility you need to look at all the possibilities hmm but i mean in the end i i turned 180 degrees because i used to say as a politician politicians must use the national health service to demonstrate confidence in it now i say no anybody who can afford to pay for themselves jolly well go and do it so uh, i don't even uh, and leave the service available for those yes. who can't so i yeah. mean despite the fact that i'm a pensioner i don't take those services which are free to pensioners because i say no uh, all the time i'm doing that somebody else is losing out hmm and talking about people who lose out um our trip to ethiopia um and i ended up in hospital there although you, you well, i ended up very very ill i wasn't in i wouldn't yeah. have gone to hospital Rosalind. i wouldn't have trusted those hospitals i mean when i was shown a hospital which had hens running about on the floor and this was called a hospital and i think you had one with kittens didn't oh you? yeah when i was having my treatment um in the uh medical lab which was supposed to be the you know the kind of cleanest part there was a cat with kittens when i commented on it they said well we don't want the rats <laughs> <laughs> so you know we were one up by having the kittens um but yes it's a terrible we, ter- terrible terrible visit with people living in dreadful conditions people we don't call them leper colonies anymore we call them leprosy affected communities but they are leper colonies by any other name uh and people who've got leprosy or whose family has leprosy and they want to stay with them uh they are moved off into special communities it's just just like the old days there's a huge stigma on leprosy in Ethiopia, much less so in Mozambique. In yes, Mozambique, absolutely. Yeah, they were a lot enormous, more. Because mm. uh, we went to Mozambique as we well. We did. As, uh, the most enormous integration there. Um, and it works. But uh, in Ethiopia, there's still huge segregation. Uh, and you've got people, therefore, who've been severely disfigured or blinded or crippled or their hands are useless as a result of leprosy. Um, and, of course, there's no social security system no absolutely so they live by crawling through the mess uh, uh to try and get to a point where they can beg well we witnessed that in the slum which is in addis ababa and it's actually that slum has grown up around the hospital yeah. because people have come to the hospital often walking for days and days and days and then they have no means to get back or maybe they're already um shunned from their local society uh, their village so they stay there so a, a slum has literally grown up around it and, and we visited it and we 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 saw yeah. those poor two men one oh, of whom um, had to go, go to beg, didn't he? Yes, and, and because there are only 200 holes in the ground serving a community of 24,000 people, uh, human waste overflows, there's animal waste, obviously, um, and that's what he crawled through to get to his begging point. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, God help us. I mean, when I hear people say, we shouldn't give so much in overseas aid, I can get angry. But equally, we waste so much. I mean, I cannot believe that with all the trillions, the trillions... That the West has poured into overseas aid, there are still vast tracts of the world without a pure water supply, mm. and we're funding Ethiopian pop groups or you know Indian space programs, and there are people without water. Yeah, which is an absolute fundamental. Oh. And. 
talking about your charity work, I know, and actually, I do share this with you because I love donkeys. Oh. I really love donkeys. It must be my childhood of going to Skegness so often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're very passionate. Um, and you told a beautiful story last night um, about um, the two boys in, um, I think it was Palestine, yes. wasn't it? And the donkeys. Yes, I'm patron of a sanctuary out there which looks after both Israeli donkeys and Palestinian donkeys and everybody laughed when I said that last night <laughs> yeah. and I knew exactly what I meant. Uh, and um, before the wall was built, there were still uh, paths across from the Palestinian areas into Israel. Uh, and uh, one day, uh, two boys uh, walking along one of these paths came upon a donkey that had been abandoned and was too sick to rise. They couldn't get it up on its feet. They knew about the sanctuary because they'd had a visit at school, uh, but they didn't know what to do. Uh, how could they get this donkey to the sanctuary? So they, uh, these two Palestinian boys asked of all people an Israeli soldier, and the Israeli soldier called a colleague, and they got between them, between the four of them, they got this donkey onto a military truck, and the Israeli soldiers drove it to the sanctuary. And I think there's a parable in there somewhere. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I, it really touched me when I heard that. I thought it was actually lovely. So you are on the second night of your tour today. Um, you're going yeah. to Wolverhampton, is that right? Wolverhampton, Coventry and Stratford this weekend. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you obviously love love it and it's lovely with that interaction with the audience the second half is what i love i mean for for your listeners who who won't know this the first half of these shows is i just talk about some of the things i've done mainly the frivolous stuff because i think we can get on to the serious later uh and then the second half of the show is entirely down to the audience they can ask questions like anything absolutely anything i don't don't bar them at all it can be very frivolous, you know, what happened to the dresses on Strictly. It can be very serious, Islamic State or something, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and that's what keeps it fresh for me, because I don't know what's coming. Mm. That is what keeps it fresh for me. Are there any questions you would be worried about? Well, I once got one that was totally impossible, and the lady stood up and she asked, there had been a scandal going on at the time, and she asked me with a completely straight face why anybody would want to have an affair with John Prescott. <laughs> And as I say, I still don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> wow, stumps. <laughs> that took some doing. <laughs> and what does happen to the dresses after Strictly? They get sold in the United States. Why? The United um, States? Well, I, I don't know. But when I um, was about to do the live tour, and of course the venues are huge, you know, places like the O2. So Craig said to me, you've got to have a dress that really stands out. So he wanted me to use the one that I'd worn at Blackpool. Which, when I first saw it, I christened it Big Bird. Because it <laughs> was bird. bright yellow and covered with yellow feathers. And when I t remind audiences of this, they, they used to say, oh, yes, you know, we remember that one. Uh, so I rang up wardrobe and I said, may I borrow Big Bird for the tour? And they said, oh, we're terribly sorry, we've sold it in the United States. So I had visions of some American going around in this vast confection. But anyway, I used something else for the tour. But then when I came to do my first pantomime with Craig, I walked into my dressing room and there hanging up was Big Bird. So I can only conclude the Americans sent it back. <laughs> and um, are you going to do pantomime this year? Do you know? I don't know whether I'll do it this year. I've done it um, year upon year. And last year I was in Red Hill. Before that I was in Suffolk. Before that Yorkshire. Before that with Basil Brush in Windsor. So I never entirely know. 
Um, but I will find out. Generally, I find out about April, May, whether I'm doing pantomime. And you'd like to do it? Oh, of course I would. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't think that. I yeah. ever told you, actually, Anne. Here's another thing we've got in common, that um, I was actually one of Ken Dodd's Diddy Men. Oh. And uh, <laughs> I was in the uh, Theatre Royal Nottingham yeah. pantomime, um, Robinson Crusoe, in 1972, as one of Ken Dodd's Diddy Men. I was the policeman, and I used to come out waving my truncheon. <laughs> And um, if you're very good, I can still do the dance. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe if you're very, very good, I won't do the dance. (laughs) So, um, what a, you know, I think your life must be absolutely um, thrilling, that variety between the writing, your charity work, obviously your your deep commitment to your um, religious faith, um, your frivolous things as well. So, what's next? I haven't a clue. I mean, I'm always asked this. Audiences always ask me, (coughs) what's next? Um, The great joy of being freelance is that you never know what's next. You find out when the telephone rings, or maybe the telephone doesn't ring. (laughs) Uh, But but that's when you find out. Uh, And I would never have predicted, for example, that I would be on at the Royal Opera House. But I was. So I never know. Yes, and thank you so much. It was a really wonderful evening um, last night at the Palace Theatre in Newark. And if people wanted to maybe travel to one of your shows, where would they find out the details about that? Oh, I think the best thing to do, um, I've got it on my website. Yeah. Uh, and so if they go to www.annwhittacombe.com, they'll, they'll find it there. And can they find your books there as well? And they can find my books there. They can find out all about me there. They can find about find out about my previous cats i don't have any animals at the moment oh. uh but they can do all of that yeah, i should send you pictures of basil and manuel my cats yeah. <laughs> so hours cats obviously thank you Anne, and thank you very much and i know you enjoyed being in newark last night and it was a great audience so um thank you very much to Anne widdicombe my guest this morning on girls around town on radio newark and um, until the next time Anne. thank you We're-